How could we not talk about it? It's monumental, a leaked decision from the Supreme Court regarding abortion. But we aren't going to start there. Tim Keller, one of my heroes, recently got something wrong. I want to tell you about it on this week's Corey Truax Show. I do not say that lightly. The likelihood that me, at 36, has something right, that Tim Keller, twice my age, with a lot more wisdom and learning, got something wrong, where I have it where I have it correct, the chances of that are very small. So I don't say ever lightly that I would correct, even into a microphone, an elder. But I think there is something he, he missed on some nuance in a tweet, and I want to tell you about it. After that, of course, I have cascading thought upon thought about what happens next in the country after a monumentally important decision was leaked. There's even a, some discussion there about the leak and what that means and who did it and why and the consequences. There's a ton I want to do there, but we will start with the Tim Keller tweet in a moment. Welcome to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. Amongst many other things, I get the privilege and pleasure of getting to serve the people of Beachwood Church as the pastor for teaching. You're invited if you don't have a church home on any given Sunday morning. We meet at 1030 and we'd love to have you there. Here was the tweet. Well, before I tell you the actual tweet, I know what Keller was doing. Keller was trying and has been trying, especially in that New York City context where he was for 40 years, not to allow, let's, I'm going to call them superficial or secondary political differences to divide the church. That things that are superficial or secondary inside the political realm would not cause church members so much strife that they divided and didn't have fellowship, that they disliked each other. In his context, I can't imagine how hard that was. New York City attracts people from all over the planet, different opinions walking to the door on things that are not core to the theology, and you want to be a cohesive group of people moving forward for the gospel. So I understand his heart. His heart was to say, people can have the same morality, know what is moral and not, but arrive at two different conclusions on how to get there. For example, the actual good example is two people can arrive at the idea that it's good and biblical for widows and orphans to receive help, to have, to have pity on them, and pity in a very physical, material, financial sense. It's, it's good if we come to a morality that if a society has a safety net of some sort— for those that fall on the worst of times, that's good. And then one Christian might say, the best system for widows and for orphans is that the church would organize, pool its resources, and take care of it, and no local government, no federal government has anything to do with it. Same thing for those that fall on hard times. And maybe another Christian would come to the conclusion, no, I think this is a legitimate function of government. We have the same goal. We want to see to it that the, the, those who can't help themselves are helped, and the best way to do it is using a government. Of course, I think that person is wrong. I, I'm going to argue here in a minute. I think that person is largely immature, both spiritually and when it comes to just their knowledge of public policy. But you can be a Christian and think 
yeah, we, we probably need a, a larger welfare state, right? And so that's that would have been his better example, but he made a fatal flaw in how he tried to make the point that Christians might have different political secondary, tertiary, political beliefs, but as long as they have the same morality, they can stay unified. He made a fatal error, and I want to go over that with you. Here we go. The tweet says this, from Tim Keller. Here are two biblical norms. One, it is a sin to worship idols or any other god than the true God. And two, do not murder. If you ask evangelicals if we should be forbidden by law, we now Americans, if Americans should be forbidden by law to worship any other god than the God of the Bible, evangelicals would say no. We allow this terrible sin of idolatry to be legal. But if you ask evangelicals if Americans should be forbidden by law to abort a baby, they would say yes. Now, here's the question that he thinks is brilliant, and it's not a good question. Now, why make the first sin legal and never talk about it, and the second sin illegal and a main moral political talking point? At the very least, it shows a lack of knowing a, a lack of a lack of knowing how to apply the Bible to politics. Respectfully, I don't know if you, you could be more wrong. Let's go to that question. He asks why not even talk about one sin, idolatry, but make the other one a really big deal about political and governance. Well, one, I don't know who you're talking about not talking about idolatry. I talk about it a whole lot, and I know a lot of church leaders. You, I think you set up a red herring there. Dr. Keller set up a red herring. There are lots of us that talk about idolatry. I think it's the core sin. I don't just think it is. It is the core sin. All sins emanate from idolatry, taking good things or bad things and making them ultimate things. But there is some more very good scriptural reason why your question is quite easy to answer. I have no biblical command, no biblical biblical guidance on governments enforcing worship laws outside of Israel. I, ha- I don't have a model in the church from Jesus' teaching from Paul's, Peter's, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, well, yeah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. I don't have any teaching that says, seek out power to force worship. I do, however, have Bible that says, God establishes governments to punish wicked and reward good. I, God, have given power to governments to punish the evildoer. And we have no problem, everyone agrees, we put in the category of evildoer, violence, murder, killers. We would say a government is unjust, and for biblical reasons, the Christian should seek out government power to get governments to arrest and maybe even execute murderers. That's the power of the sword that God gives to government. This is a terrible comparison, terrible analogy, and a really easy question. The Bible says nothing to me about making governments enforce worship laws, but it does specifically say government is there to wield the sword, punish evil, and reward good. Back to Tim Keller's tweet. Since we can't say if the Bible said, if, uh, this is now a quote, since we can't say if the Bible says it's sin, it should be illegal, how do we choose which morals to politically champion? Oh, and please don't say, I just want to see the Ten Commandments made law in society. That's too simplistic, and we don't do this. The Bible tells us that idolatry, abortion, 
and ignoring the poor, those are three things he just put on equal footing regarding government policy. Idolatry, abortion, and ignoring the poor are all grievous sins. But it doesn't tell us exactly how we are to apply these norms to pluralistic democracy. Right now we're back to me, Dr. Keller. I love you. You've taught me so much of what I know and how to say it, how to, t- how to communicate. Let me say to you, slow down. Yes, those are all grievous sins. Idolatry, abortion, and ignoring the poor, all grievous sins. But again, there is no biblical command for me to take government and require worship laws, and there's no biblical command for me to take government to address the poor. I don't think there's necessarily a prohibition for me to try to use government to help the poor, but there's certainly not a command. But I am specifically told government's purpose, punish evil, reward good, and use the sword. All right, so we're going to use the sword to punish the evil of murder. And abortion is murder. It's a whole giant category error you've made on this issue. Specifically, we can go Old Testament there. Murder is to be criminalized and punished. Violence is. Uh, Where did Jonah go? Nineveh was going to be judged in large part because of its violence. It was a violent, lawless society, and God wanted to judge it for its lawlessness and violence. So including abortion in a murder, including murder in the category with idolatry idolatry and poor is an invalid argument. You've made a a really bad category error. Now, sure, um, there are variations in the faith on those other policies. There, There is inside Christianity different views on how to take care of the poor. I don't, I'm sure there's different views about, I don't know, idolatry regulation? Probably not. But abortion is not one of those. There's no gray here. We, we know what murder is. We know murder is to be condemned. And we know that the Christian is to work inside the place where they live for the good of their neighbor, for good order, to see that murder is punished when it happens. Back to the, tel- the Keller tweet thread. He says, We are to help the poor, but the Bible doesn't tell us which political strategy high taxes in in government services versus low taxes in private charity to use. All right, back to me. I can give in a little here. You've already heard me give in some. If someone says, a a believer, they affirm the inerrancy of Scripture, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, by grace are you saved through faith, Christ alone, like all that. They, They affirm the fundamentals. And they say to me, I am compelled by the scriptures to see to it that the poor are helped. And I think the way to do that is to work inside governments to get more resources from those who have those resources and give them to those that don't. I think that, let me say what I think of that person. I think that person is immature. I think they have an immature understanding of the scriptures. I also think they have an an immature understanding of American history. They might be an immature thinker. They don't have to be. Some very smart people think that. But that also is a, it's instinctually some, some immaturity that just says, well, some people have money. Why don't we just take it from them and give it to others without thinking about the down-the-line consequences of what happens when you confiscate wealth and the consequences that it has on the creation of wealth or the lack of creation of wealth. Like uh, Economics is actually quite the science. It is a complex system. 
So I, I think that person, that believer who would say to me, the way to address poverty is high taxes and big social programs, I think they have an immature understanding of Scripture. They also have an immature understanding of economics. For a couple reasons, like even when it comes to understanding Scripture, in the high-tax, high-service idea, there's no personal sacrifice. There's no real generosity in it. Here we are, a people called to generosity, and there's just nothing generous about seeking power to take resources. And like, you didn't do anything for anybody yourself. You just you made a bunch of other people do something. That's a, a mature Christian is going to it's going to be different. It's going to look different. There's going to be some personal sacrifice. It's going to hurt a little bit to give. There is, I think a, I don't know ah, what's the best word for this. There's some immaturity in that. It looks to someone else to solve a problem. Part of growing up, becoming a man and a woman, is to look at a problem and go, I'm going to solve that. I will admit, I'm going to offend some of you here. I don't mean to. I'm not making fun of you for this. Listen to me. I mean this. I am not making fun of you for this. I am telling you I'm different. And because I'm so different, when I see this idea projected, I don't understand it. So I'm not right, just because I don't understand it doesn't mean I'm right. I'm just telling you I don't get this. I don't identify with it. I'm just not, it's, I want you to know I'm not mocking you. But there's a whole like internet world that talks about the term adulting. They do something like you're just supposed to do. You fulfill your, you fulfill your normal duties as a husband, wife, parent, employee, something like that. And you did hashtag adulting. I think I, I just felt like a grown man since I was 15, and I don't, I find nothing in me that is surprised when I do what I was supposed to when I was supposed to with the excellence that I could muster. And equally, I, I see a meme sometimes that says, I'm at that age where when something really bad happens, there's a crisis, I keep looking for the adult in charge, and then I realize I'm the adult in charge. And while I get that, I think it's, I guess it's kind of funny, part of what I would love to call people to is maturity and to call you up. Let's be men and women. Let's be grown men and women. And part of that maturity is looking at problems and not saying, it's so big, I, I just want someone else to do it. Can there be a, a different dad or a different mom, the government, to solve this? I, I don't think I can do this. I can't be personally charitable or, gener- or generous. I can't organize with others ways to help. All I can ever imagine is a government doing it. It's also that's part of the immaturity. Real maturity ends up having a healthy imagination. Immaturity has someone using their imagination for fantasies. But as you grow up, if you have a strong imagination, like I did as a kid, your imagination is bound by what is actually possible. And when you bind a creative imagination by the rules of physics and law and logic, you actually can come up with really cool solutions to things. And so I would argue, yeah, this person, this Christian over here, that argues government is the best way to take care of the poor, yeah, I just think they're immature. I don't think they quite have an understanding of Scripture that's developed all that well or, or has not developed as much as it could have. Again, I could be wrong on that. I think that they don't know history well enough. History has demonstrated in every system that freedom, capitalism, private investment is the best thing for the most people. The most people get the most wealth and come out of poverty. China is a great example of that in the modern day. I mean, ultimately, prosperity comes, and prosperity and security, financial security, comes from people being able to make their own choices and suffer or be- benefit from the consequences of their choices. 
because that ends up helping the group too. The rest of the group sees that person's successful. How did they do that? Oh, I want to model that. Oh man, that person's life fell apart. How'd they do that? I want to make sure I don't model that. That's a, it's a great system. And uh, again, cr- Christians, I think you can be in the faith and, ho- and hold in uh, either direction. I'm just telling you, I think there's one that's more mature than the other. I spent too much time on that. And I'm sorry. All right. Um, back to the t- t- Keller tweet. The Bible binds my conscience to love the immigrant, but it doesn't tell me how many legal immigrants to admit to the U.S. every year. Yeah, to Keller on that, uh, agreed. The I, I even think he kind of misses the point there. The, the call to love the immigrant is clear and obvious, and it's to love the immigrant that's actually in your country. Not It's not a question about how many should you let in or how many should you want in. It's just the ones that are there, don't treat them badly. Don't take advantage of them. Love the immigrant community that's around you. Uh, I'm gonna show, so I'll skip that one. But yeah, Christians could be, I could see Christians on either end of, or lots of, and lots of places in between on immigration debates because the morality is, well, love the immigrant. But that might look differently. There might be different strategies to loving the immigrant. Coming down towards near the end here, back to his tweet, he says, I know abortion is a sin, but the Bible doesn't tell me the best political policy to decrease or end abortion in this country, nor which political or legal policies are most effective to that end. Dr. Keller? No. You are wrong on that. The Bible does tell me the best policy to decrease or end abortion. Because the Bible told me the best policy to end murder. We make it illegal. We ban it. And then those who do commit the murders, we punish them harshly. Often in the Bible, that's death. To put abortion in the same category as he just did with caring for the poor or immigration is just wrong. You made a category error. We cannot add... Abortion is murder. So add it to that that category. The Bible is clear on what governments are supposed to do to murderers. And so there is no wiggle room here for the Christian. The There are debatable things. Actually, I'll, I'll read the end of his tweet here and make that point. The last part of the tweet is, the current political parties will say that their policy... What, where I lost, Oh, there it is. Found it. Uh, they'll say that their policy most morally aligns with the Bible. But we are allowed to debate that, and so our churches should not have disunity over debatable political differences. differences. Okay, sure, yeah. We should not have disunity over debatable political differences. Policy on immigration and taking care of the poor, fine, cool, it's debatable. Abortion is not debatable, not inside the faith. It must end. It is existential evil, and it must stop. That is not an encouragement for you to stop listening and uh, reading Tim Keller until his last days on this earth. That guy is brilliant. He has taught me more than all... He's taught me how to communicate almost better than any any more than anyone else has. Uh, So he, he made that error. I think it was a bad one. I don't want anyone thinking the way he just thought putting abortion in those other categories. It's not there. The biblical worldview is going to know the difference between murder and idolatry and immigration and poverty and how to deal with those things and what government's role is in it. Speaking of government's role, when we return, I suspect the rest of the show is on the Supreme Court leak, the consequences thereof, and what happens next regarding life and abortion in the United States of America. We'll get started on that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts, and right here on His Radio Talk.
it is inarguably in my lifetime a top five most significant story in the United States. This week, earlier this week, Politico reports from a leaked document that Chief Justice John Roberts has confirmed is genuine. Politico published a PDF of an opinion written by Justice Samuel Alito, joined by four other justices that, in no uncertain terms, would overturn Roe versus Wade, which said states could not regulate abortion in the first two trimesters, and also Casey, uh, Planned, Parent- Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which, in large part, reaffirm Roe. I, I didn't believe it, honestly. I thought this has to be some kind of joke for a couple reasons. One, you don't leak from the Supreme Court. This is a an austere and serious body with a bunch of serious people in it, justices that know each other, seem to like each other, have some real comity, C-O-M-I-T-Y, some comity amongst them, some trust amongst them. I just didn't believe it, and as I saw the world explode, the media world explode, it, it became quite clear this is real. And at some level, it's... When it comes to the consequences, the human consequences of this, before you get to the, the the political consequences that a lot of people want to run to, this is just there's nothing bigger happening right now. So I have a lot. I I wrote down some categories of things I want to say and talk about, and I'm just gonna let it free freely flow, starting right now. Welcome to the Corey Truax Show, or welcome back to it. We are on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts, you can email the show, and I hope you will, at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com, or you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. The handle is Corey Truax because that is my very weird name. All right, I want to start with the leak. As of talking to you right now, when I'm recording it at this microphone, we do not know who did it, but this is an egregious act. I suspect it's criminal in some way, and if it's not criminal, we need to write a law to make it criminal. Uh, you can't you can't write laws uh, that retroactively charge somebody. That's called ex post facto hoc. You can't have laws that apply in in uh, in in history to someone who's alive right now. Anyway, point being the this has to be illegal because we what what this does is continue a theme that I talk about on the show a lot our mutual trust in the country trust for each other and trust for institutions that's media education religion government arts and entertainment that trust is at an all-time low there are very few institutions and people that everybody trusts. I think we're down to basically Dolly Parton, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, uh, Betty White. Is she still alive? I think all those people, those are unifying figures, and then I would put right up there with them the Supreme Court. Largely, the American people, according to data, according to the polling, says that we, we generally trust them that we don't think they're partisan, that they're a fair arbiter of what is legal and what's not. Different parts of the country get mad at the court, and I think that's part, from time to time, and I think that's part of their credibility, is that there is anger at them from lots of different directions from time to time, and so they seem fair. This kind of leak of the most significant decision in my lifetime from a Supreme Court is an obvious political maneuver. 
I suspect I don't I hate speculating. I because mean, I it's so easy to be made to look stupid later when you speculate and you get it you get it wrong. There is certainly a theory that it could be someone from the right. Someone who really wants to see Roe versus Wade overturned. They leak the document with the motivation being these five justices who have already signed on to this, let's lock them in. We they you know they they don't ever want to be called the coward that backed off of doing the good and righteous and right thing. And I'm going to say that with a lot of clarity. If you if you think Roe versus Wade is good law, you are uninformed or misinformed. You don't actually know what happened in the case. Or uh, you might be demonically, willfully seeing this wrongly. There is, I mean, Roe was decided with some made-up stuff. Uh, penumbras, penumbras, excuse me, I can't say it. Penumbras from emanations. If you Google that, you'll get the history of it. And a made-up right to privacy that apparently whatever you do with a doctor, it doesn't matter. Anything you're doing with a doctor, it absolutely is private. Those two things they just made up. Oh, and also, the argument they're ultimately going to end up making on this overturn was the Tenth Amendment says, if we didn't talk about it in this document, the Constitution, leave it to the states. And so just even what we're going to do here with this decision is send it back to the states because the Tenth Amendment would say do that. Roe versus Wade is garbage law. Beyond it being morally egregious, dark and demonic, it's also stupid. It's dumb law. And so, I can see someone on the right wanting to leak it to lock people in to their decision and not want to be the coward that backed off. But it doesn't fit the rightist, let's go with demeanor, towards institutions. We on the right tend to be more institutionalists. We think they're important. I've told you the story many times. I think it's G.K. Chesterton that said the difference between a conservative and a liberal is if a conservative and a liberal see a fence put up in the middle of a field and they think it's ugly, the liberal will just want to take it down and the conservative wants to ask a lot of questions about, hey, why is that fence here? We, we didn't, let's make sure that this doesn't have a purpose. We, we tend to be institutionalists. The left is not. The left is naturally of the institution, of, excuse me, of the, of the persuasion. Tear them all down. Our institutions are racist and sexist and bigoted and misogynistic all the way down to the core. So just tear them all up. So my inclination is that a leftist motivation makes more sense. But I'm not convinced because there's there's no evidence yet. I think the leftist inclination is also more natural because abortion is the sacrament of leftism. What baptism and the Lord's Supper is to the Christian... Abortion is to the secular progressive humanist leftist. It is the child sacrifice that they need. I don't think that they know that's true of them, but part of the secular religion has abortion as a sacrament. So everything must be done to save it. So that's my take on the leak. It's egregious, it's terrible, because it erodes trust, and whoever did it needs to be punished to the fullest extent of the law. And whatever changes need to happen at the court to prevent it, let's do that. Even if that means this. Data at the court never leaves the court. Thumb drives are not allowed. There's no remote servers. There's no signing in from home to any portal. Work must be done on site. And you have a data, uh, let's call that a vault. The Supreme Court comes a data vault. And no, nothing comes in or out. Uh, what else? Okay, so the decision itself. Of course it's good. Not just morally, but legally, it makes a lot of sense. It leans heavily on the Tenth Amendment. That the 
Congress, the Constitution, it never gave the federal government purview over abortion. And so by the nature of the Tenth Amendment, you just have to give it back to the states. Now, you go back to Roe and recognize again, there's no such thing as an absolute right to privacy that you can do whatever you want, including kill a child, as long as you're doing it in private with a doctor. That doesn't exist. If we, I've already gone through this. I, I need to not go back through and relitigate Roe and how stupid that decision was. And of course, while this decision is good and we'll send it to the states, of course it's not good enough. Eventually there needs to be laws on the books that ban this practice and punish those who break that law. For now, here's what I expect. About half the country. Uh, stop. I shouldn't say that. When, when I say half the country, I mean half the states. But you, then you have to recognize between California, Texas, Florida, and New York, I think those four states have like one-fifth of our entire population. Maybe it's close to one-fourth of the entire population lives in one of those four states. But you think even think of it that way. Maybe half the humans in the country will live in states that have abortion laws that are restrictive. First 12 or 13 weeks and only for rape, incest, and uh, you got to prove that it's life of the mother. That you have two doctors certify, yes, this woman will die if she has a kid, if she has this baby. There's going to be a tiny group, 10 states or fewer, and I don't know how much of the population that makes up, that they open it up for abortion up until the moment of birth, recreational abortion. Get pregnant for the sake of having the abortion. There will be 10 states that do that because abortion is a sacrament for the left. There will be another small group of states, probably 10 of them. I'd say South Carolina, Mississippi, Alabama, Utah, North Dakota, South Dakota, those kinds of places. It's probably something close to a ban. Altogether, like I certainly a life of the mother uh, exception, but that's all. And so while it's good that we sent this back to the states, it's progress, it's good that a bad decision was overturned, it's certainly not far enough. So I'm glad for it, it's not far enough. Also on the decision, I heard this on NPR, riding home. I heard a lot of disaffected, sad people complaining that the, the conservative justices or the constitutionalist justices on the court lied they lied about precedent. They lied about starry decisis. Let the decision stand. Because they were all asked about Roe, and they called it the law of the land. They, I heard some audio played from Brett Kavanaugh that it is the Supreme Court precedent. Yeah, Roe is the precedent right now. That does not mean they lied to you. What is true there is, yeah, it, it is the precedent. But the Supreme Court overturns itself i.e. Plessy versus Ferguson. There's more. A, a court later on can look back at a previous court and say, you guys were wrong about that. There, you do that a lot with slavery laws. The Supreme Court early on held to a lot of pro-slavery policy and then later on overrules itself regarding slavery. It's not even odd. It's not weird for the Supreme Court to overturn itself. And so it's, they didn't lie to you. They said, yeah. Right now, as an appellate judge, it's the law that I must abide by. It's the ruling I must abide by. And by the way, I don't even necessarily agree with that from a Christian biblical perspective. But 
I'll abide by it. It's the precedent. And then once elevated to the Supreme Court, I have every bit of power that the previous court had. And yeah, I overturned them because they were wrong. Uh, I should go ahead and do this one. Yeah, let's go ahead and do this one. We'll start getting into the consequences. Actually, that's a fantastic place to take the break. So that's the, the leak and the decision. The leak is egregious. The decision is good, but not far enough. Now, when we come back, what happens next? What are the political, personal, human consequences of this decision? We'll do that when you come back for the rest of The Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts and right here on his radio talk. What happens next? The days, weeks, and months after the overturn of Roe versus Wade, which I, which I expect is the world we are about to be living in. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show for the final segment. My name is Corey Truax. We're dedicated to smarter, deeper, and better talk on the Corey Truax Show right here on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. Here are some of the consequences I thought of. I already mentioned legally a lot of states are going to become abortion tourism states where they will fund the travel to their states. Pro-abortion groups like Planned Parenthood, NARAL, I suspect, will have programs that if you are in South Carolina and you want an abortion, and there's you're past the regulation for it in South Carolina, that they will set you up for your very glamorous trip to Maryland to get your abortion. I do, uh, I, I not, not just I don't. Uh, I'm going to rephrase that. I predict that will happen. That's what's coming in the the years to follow, and maybe even this year, you'll see the tourism abortion industry pop up. I think legally, though, I don't know what the next step is on on getting us to where we actually need to be. I mean, for the pro-life advocate, what a triumph this is. It's 50 years of ad- advocacy, 50 years of a climb to just get to make uh to make undone something that made abortion regulation impossible in states that would do it. But of course we know what's happening. We know, we know there's murder here. We know there's murder here just as much as those who abolished slavery knew that man's man buying and woman buying and owning was wrong. We have every bit the moral clarity the abolitionists of slavery did. And while William Wilberforce over in Britain I, I'm sure felt satisfaction when the slave trade ended. Slavery itself was another step. And this does feel as though the slave trade in some way ended, Roe versus Wade being that first big step, but there's long ways to go. Mitch McConnell said, if Republicans retake the Senate, they will not, they will not destroy the filibuster in order to pass a ban on abortion nationally. I can be disagreed with, but I think that's the right call. Again, we are institutionalists. We follow the rules. We make law by acting lawfully. So I don't know how to get there. But I know that we continue to change hearts and minds. So that's the legal consequences, too. Human consequences. The most significant and profound human consequence of this decision is more children will live just think about that for one second. It's a group of folks in the country. I don't. I don't want to turn this into a partisan screed, but it's a group of people in the country 
who seem quite intent on their intersectional values being progressed, and that includes having more women in places of power. You know that in our country, not as much as in other countries, but more girls are aborted than boys when we have been able to determine the gender. Something that's about to happen is we're about to have more little girls. We have an entire group of people that, in part, their their morality is their intersectional support, that they want to see fewer white people and more minorities do things. You know what we're about to see? We're about to see more black kids born. We're going to see more Hispanic kids born. We're going to see more kids generally. But if the demographics tell us anything... That's the beautiful thing that will happen is babies of all tribes, tongues, and nations that would have otherwise been snuffed out in the womb, they will be born. Now, you're not hearing me on this, on the human consequence. The wonderful human consequences is those children will be born. But then there is the reality that those little lives and those, those little lives and their mothers and fathers are often or sometimes going to need some help. I've talked to you about it much, many times before, but the crisis pregnancy centers, churches themselves, we do need to be the place that an impoverished mom, uh, a family down on their luck, can walk in and say, diapers are insanely expensive. We need diapers for a month. Can you help? Crisis pregnancy centers supported by churches, ministries that have the means. We, we need to be places where a mom and a dad can come in or a mom by herself and say, I'm trying my best formula is insanely expensive. I can't find it anywhere. Can you help me? And we say yes, that we are ready to help. I want to see more children in the, wo- in the world and fewer killed in the womb. And therefore, I want to be ready to support to my own detriment, to my own sacrifice, because it's so worth it. So those are the legal consequences, some human consequences, but I know a lot of folks immediately jumped to the political consequences, and so that's the old hat I used to wear. I guess I should put it on and tell you what I think happens. There's a lot of folks that seem to put forth the postulation that this is such a such a divisive issue. It's so energizing for the left that here, here was conservatives, they were staring at November with all the enthusiasm on their side, assured, taking enough seats in the House, almost certainly enough to take the Senate, and then out of nowhere, this decision is going to energize enough left-wingers to get out and imperil the right's ability through the Republican Party, a very, very, very flawed vessel, through the Republican Party to take control of Congress. That that's what happened here. You know, that they may have lost Roe versus Wade, but it means they're going to win more in November. In short, I think those people are really wrong and a little immature. Let me take it back to 2012. The June in June of 2012. So very, or the calendar is very similar here. It's 10 years ago exactly. Justice Roberts turned his back on rationality and the Constitution incited to keep Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. And a lot of people on the right said, this is exactly what Mitt Romney needed. People weren't excited about him, but conservatives needed to be angry about something. 
And if the Supreme Court's not going to overturn an unconstitutional law, man, this Supreme Court decision of the Affordable Care Act is going to fire up a bunch of conservatives and it's going to take Mitt Romney over the finish line. How'd that work out for you? It did do this. I think it did beef his numbers. There were some folks who probably wouldn't have voted who did vote because that energy from June drove them to November. And that's going to happen here. I suspect, yes, there will be an uptick in enthusiasm and the vote total will be greater on the left because of this decision. But will it be enough to overcome the rest of the headwinds? The math on this is kind of difficult, but if you're into math, at least this kind of math like I am, I suggest to you the Cook Political Report. About one quarter of the site is in front of a paywall where you can see their stuff. I pay a small subscription. I think it's like five bucks a month to get all of their data. But they are unbelievably accurate on election predictions with some very, let's go with sophisticated math in how they, how they measure things. Their math before this decision landed on Republicans picking up between 25 and 30 seats in the House and probably taking the Senate 52 to 48, winning seats in Georgia, Arizona, no, Georgia and Nevada. Those are the two. Georgia and Nevada with a chance at Arizona. The uh, I started doing their own math because they didn't put out new maps yet since this, but using their own formulas, I found that the range is now going to be between 22 and 27. Yeah, they'll... There will be some seats that don't get picked up because of this. A, that's super worth it. But B, it's not enough to actually change the tide. Not, not in a meaningful way. Here's a couple of reasons why. As I mentioned before, there was the Obamacare ruling is a good example. And here's why. Emotions are fickle. Rage and anger die out. We are six months from election day. There will still people will still be people mad about this six months from now, but not like they are now. This is the raw emotion of it, and six months from now, people refocus. Number two reason why I don't think there's big political consequences is the underlying reality is the same. You have to remember this. You can have, let's, let's say it this way. Let's say there's two political parties and ten issues. One political party can have a majority of people agree with them on seven out of ten issues. But if those other three issues are the ones people are super concerned about and they care about a lot, they will lose that election. And they'll lose and they'll say, well, the majority of people agree with us on the majority of topics. How do we lose? Because the majority of people agreed with the other side on the stuff they care about. And here's what the underlying data says right now. The underlying data says... The people who are going to show up in November, the people who are most motivated to vote, that's one of the things Cook Political Report does really well, is predicting who's actually going to come out and vote, because we are a very low turnout country. If you could predict who's going to come vote, then you could predict the winner of an election. This is one of the reasons the polling companies get everything so wrong. If you go back to the 2020 election, you know I'm not a fan of either person who was in the 2020 election, but going in to that night... The polling companies had the Democratic nominee winning Ohio, Florida, had the Democratic nominee winning North Carolina, I recall. I think it was had had Joe Biden winning Iowa, and none of those states were close. They were 
well, North Carolina was pretty close. The Republican nominee won all those states, some of them convincingly, Ohio and Florida at least. And it's because they do a they do a very good job of measuring public opinion. They do a very bad job of figuring out who's going to vote. And what typically drives people to vote is something oppositional. They are opposed to something, so they show up, or they're angry about something. And the thing driving the country right now, what it appears is driving the people who plan to vote in November, are these three things. Inflation, crime, and the state of the economy. The people who correlate to saying, I'm definitely voting in November, they're most likely to say, inflation, crime, state of the economy. Abortion is very low on that list, and right now it, it may pop up there in, into the top five, and it's going to then dwindle back down. People are upset that it's very expensive to live right now. They're very upset. Like, listen, polling data is one thing. The uh, GDP numbers that come out, or, or maybe some positive employment numbers that come out, that's one thing. You know what people have to look out every look at every day? The gas price. What they have to look at every week? is how much they're paying at the grocery store. For all the metrics someone can be given, their lived life is their metric. And people are upset about inflation. People are upset about crime. So people very close to me talk to me often about how freaked out they can get by just watching the news, and it just seems like there's a massive crime wave. And we are in a crime spike. But people are seeing it. They're experiencing it in their own lives. I don't want to give away any confidence, but... uh, a, an organization I'm a part of, and I'm part of a lot of them, so that's vague enough, just suffered a a break-in and some stuff taken. Like, it's this is real. Like, we have a crime issue, and it's driving people to the polls. They look at one side that says defund the police. They look at another side that doesn't, and it's animating them, saying, you're, you're causing me a problem by pumping out money into the economy we don't need, giving me inflation. You won't enforce the laws. You, you have a state of lawlessness. And then finally is the state of the economy. The market's in free fall. The wages are growing but slower than inflation. And the bottom line is, as summer drags on, those issues will not be ameliorated. Those issues are likely to decay. Inflation is still going to be a problem because the Federal Reserve is not going to raise the interest rate high enough or not fast enough to suck out the inflation. And by that, and also raising the interest rates is going to cause economic contraction. Right now, you're you're probably actually living in a recession right now. We already know first quarter, January, February, March, had economic shrinkage. The economic the the economy exchanged fewer dollars and produced fewer goods. We're now in May. I suspect we are in month five of six. We're currently living in a recession right now, and that could drag into a third quarter. I I suspect it might. I. And I don't see crime getting any better unless some major change comes to major cities because that's where the that's where the crime is driven. And so, for this political consequence, yeah, you might get some pickup of enthusiasm for folks who vote on the left, but their emotions are fickle, and the underlying reality is the same: people are being driven by crime, inflation, and the state of the economy. The other underlying reality is the people who vote are usually angry, and the party out of power is usually the most angry. And so they show up because they're angry, and the party out of power typically wins. Maybe the final thing for me. So there was, how did I do that? Legal consequences. What's going to happen in the legal world? We still have a ways to go. There's human consequences. More lives in this world for us to take, uh, to love, support, to share the gospel with, but it's good that we have those lives. 
political consequences, I don't think much changes. And then finally, there are, of course, spiritual consequences. We, we know abortion is a spiritual and biblical issue. It's not a political one. It's the mass killing of the unborn. We have been doing the mass killing of the unborn for 50 years. Judgment comes for that. I have said often into this microphone, I believe abortion is demonic to my very core. I've said that of slavery. To to actually look at another human who looks different than you, to purchase them, put them on a boat in squalid conditions, knowing you're going to take them across the ocean to a really bad life, there's something very dark in that person. And I think the person who can administer a poison to a small child or use instruments and a camera to, you can feel it. You can feel yourself. This is, this is graphic, so view, listener discretion is advised. But ripping an arm off, ripping another limb off, and just piece by piece pull a baby apart. Yeah, I think you're demonic. There's a darkness to this practice. And it is a good thing the more we make progress in eliminating how much this demonic practice takes place. So final call to you today, some calls to prayer. Pray for those justices. Pray for their safety. Forces of darkness would like to see them hurt, would like to see them killed. Pray for their safety. Pray for their courage. Pray for their fortitude. And then pray for your country. We are all we seem to be on the edge of unrest a good bit. So pray for peace to prevail. Thanks for sticking with me this week. I'll be back with another new edition of the Corey True Act Show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.